Well, hello everyone. My name is Luke and let me echo that encouragement. Keep daring to love. It's awesome to see people going after this, making love go viral. See that graph going up? My kids jumped in on this. They're doing the dishes, making cars for the neighbors, even digging into their own piggy bank. So let's keep going. If ever the world needed people who would dare to love, this is the time. Now, we're going to talk today not so much about the things that we do, but more about what we think and how we think about things, what's operating maybe way in the back, and how we're doing actions. We'll try to engage the mind today, so uh, let's stay together. We'll start here. If you were talking to someone who says they have a religious faith or a relationship with God, and you ask them just to tell you more about that, they'd probably describe it in pretty personal ways. They'd talk about their experience and the changes they've seen in their lives. They'd speak of spiritual things. They might tell of a certain closeness they feel with God. And they'd no doubt name some particular beliefs that they think are important. And one of the things that you might take away is that they've painted a picture of their faith that is noticeably subjective with how it's interwoven with their feelings and the personal and experiential nature of what they describe. And further, anytime anyone says a statement beginning with, I believe, it just sort of triggers us to assume that whatever comes after that, belongs in the realm of opinion. It's not universally true, but rather unique to that person. It's their belief. And that's fine. It's okay for them to hold their opinions about what they believe and feel and experience and what it all means, so long as, as is often assumed, they keep it to themselves. That's where matters of faith belong, the the, the private sphere, the inner world. Now, those sorts of things, matters of faith, are usually viewed in contrast to actual facts, rational things. Truths discovered through reason, objective things, not subjective. Matters that are self-evident, not skewed by personal opinion or interpretation or feeling. There is no belief or faith needed in this realm because any reasonable person can see what's true. Like, gravity belongs here. I could quibble with your beliefs about the spiritual realm, but ain't neither of us going to argue about whether gravity is holding us to the floor. It's a proven fact. Most of us, whether we know it or not, have been taught to accept this divide between faith and facts, subjective experience and objective truth, non-rational and rational, conclusions drawn through a leap of faith and conclusions determined through reason. All of those things are associated with one another and all of those things are associated with one another. And that kind of framework would lead quite naturally to somebody asking the question, how could you say that belief in God is reasonable? That's the question we're trying to respond to today in week two of this series, Six Feet Apart, which is aimed at helping us find our way when answers seem out of reach and life doesn't make sense. Considering that we're living through the biggest disruption that any of us have ever seen, it's a good time to be talking about things like this. Examining, like, where have we placed our trust? Is God even real? If he is, how could he allow this suffering? And other questions that have been kicked up in the chaos. A strange couple months. So, what can we say today? If you're someone who says you believe in God or you look sideways at people who say that, it's a good thing to be wondering about. Is there anything reasonable about saying you believe in God? So this this is a monster question. We're not going to solve it in like 90 minutes or however long I'm going to talk. Okay. I think we've got time for three quick moves. All right. Number one, believing there's no God is not as reasonable as it seems. Here's what I mean. Some people would want to use all of their faculties and every resource available to study the natural world. This is a very good thing. 
You can use the scientific method to observe the world and study cause and effect. You can learn lots of true and helpful things as a result. You gather empirical data, information that can be known through the senses. You make hypotheses, test them, prove stuff, disprove stuff. It's a very rational process and a very good process. Now, what you likely won't be able to demonstrate in any kind of repeatable experiment are the things that belong to any potential supernatural realm. Science is not fit to study such things or to make claims about things beyond the natural world. Now, because of that, what some people have done is arrive at the conclusion that the only things that exist are those things that can be demonstrated through scientific study. And say that if you cannot demonstrate something scientifically, then it can't be true and it has no grounding in reality. But the thing is, when you say that the only thing that matters are the things that science tells us about the world, then you're not doing science anymore. You're making a value judgment. You're making a faith commitment. Faith in the idea that nothing can exist outside of what can be shown empirically. But that statement can't be demonstrated empirically. So what you're left with is trust putting a lot of trust in science to be the full and final determiner of everything true and meaningful. But is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to ask science to do something that it wasn't designed to do? Science accounts for natural causes, but it's not equipped to prove that no other causes exist or that a supernatural being can't exist simply because it can't be contained within the scientific process. So a a person can believe in naturalism and deny the supernatural, but That is not at all the only reasonable conclusion to be drawn from studying the natural world. It is a particular belief, supported by the opinion that what can be learned and explained through science is more important than whatever can be learned and explained through any other way. But the reality is that science can't prove to any of us that it should be valued in that way. And probably anybody who's fallen in love or been moved by a work of art, or been passionate about a cause, or whose heart was churning for justice, or was pricked with compassion, or enjoyed a friendship that just clicked. Anyone who's had any of those experiences could likely begin to reason that maybe there are other things that matter, that are real and meaningful, and that exist, and that are true beyond just scientific explanations, as valuable as they may be. The point here is everybody's got to have faith. And everybody should use reason to discern which beliefs, which claims, which value judgments make the best sense of reality. It's not accurate to say that the person who says there is no God is strictly using reason and that all the facts automatically point to their conclusion. They've got every bit of leap to make as the person who reasons that God exists. Second move. Let's talk about some reasons to believe in God. Again, briefly, right here. Okay, some other day, you go, you put on a pot of coffee, sit on the porch, and you ruminate on these things. Or talk about them with someone older and wiser. Or read C.S. Lewis or Alvin Plantinga. All right? For right now, let's just kind of orient ourselves a little bit. Like we had a map out trying to find our way towards some reasons for belief in God. What kinds of stops would we make along that journey? We'll just point to them quickly. Well, you would definitely want to spend some time looking at, well, where did all this come from? Something can't come from nothing. When you keep, you peel it all the way back, what do you find? 
seems reasonable to believe that there's something or someone behind it all. Call it supernatural, extranatural, some entity that exists without cause to bring this into existence. Science can only study causation, but what accounts for the first cause? Lots to think about right there. You'd also want to observe the, call it the fine-tuning of the world. Everything is just right. The, the constants of physics, gravity, the speed of light, the distance of the earth from the sun, the perfect tilting of the earth on its axis, even if off just a few degrees one way or another, life couldn't happen. Science shows us how it's all so precise. Why is that? You could reason some intentional design and not sheer happenstance and be on good ground. At some point, we'd want to try to make sense of the moral obligation that we all, every human from every time in history, from every culture, we all have this built-in sense of oughtness, what ought to be done and not be done, a desire for justice. It's hardwired in. Where does that come from? It's reasonable to locate that in a world where a personal God creates in God's image and to whom we feel some sense of responsibility as opposed to an impersonal universe with no God. Now, if you keep thinking, you'd start to become aware of your thinking, your own consciousness. Why do we have that? Why can I be aware of myself and reflect and have ideas and subjective experience? It doesn't seem to be explainable as a survival mechanism, as naturalism would insist. Plenty of life forms survive without it. When we experience joy, love, memories, meaning, sorrow, and the significance that we ascribe to those things, is that just the neutral chemical processes in our brains? Tim Keller discusses a lot of these things in his book, Making Sense of God. At one point, he says, if you believe that your self-consciousness, free choice, love, and ability to reflect on reality are central to what it means to be human, And if you believe that your sense of significance of love is not an illusion produced by your genes, then you should be very reluctant to accept that this material reality is all there is. It's reasonable to believe in a universe created by an idea-making, conscious God. Now, there are more stops we can make along the way, but certainly at least one more you'd want to ponder while you're sipping your coffee or out for a walk is the reality of beauty. Beautiful things have an effect on us that goes beyond just the drive to survive. Beautiful things are not just a means to an end. It's certainly reasonable to follow that transcendent pull of beauty, just as with justice and meaning and love, and believe that they they point to something beyond the natural world and are not fully explained scientifically. Okay, there's... A lot, there's weeks worth of thinking and conversation that could be had about all of that and more. And there are tons of people who maybe over months or years or decades have pondered these sorts of things. and They've been helped immensely in their understanding of reality. They've sharpened their reasoning. They've bolstered their faith through an honest and disciplined pursuit of what's true, of what perspective best accounts for what we observe in the world. And to review, studying the natural world is really good. Examining the signposts that point to the supernatural is very reasonable. And yet, even given all of that, that it can be super helpful and edifying and worth going way further down all of those paths and exploring all those things, doing that by itself wouldn't automatically lead to the Christian perspective or to a belief in the God of the Bible. Third move. Using reason to answer the question, which 
And this is where the conversation all funnels to Jesus. you got to do something with Jesus. I hadn't mentioned his name, and you're beginning to wonder if this is a real sermon or what. Well, let's throw a bunch of other names out there first, okay? Look at that. Huh? Yeah. Uh, These are uh, names of some figures that people over time have believed to be gods. It's not an exhaustive list, but a representation of some of the ways that different cultures have accounted for the supernatural realm. Now, uh, they all have their own stories associated with them, their own resumes, if you will. Uh, Lots of them similar, like, oh, I see here you claim to have created the world, and humans and animals too. Amazing. Good job. And uh, some of them also claim to be not just a God, but the God, Lord of Lords, God of God, super supernatural, uh, gets along well with humans. Well, they all sort of differ in how they relate to humans. Now, what, what some of us have done is taken all of this, all of these resumes and trashed them. This is all just ancient superstition that clearly has no bearing on reality. And probably a lot of us have concluded something similar about most of these so-called gods represented here. We've dismissed nearly all of them. But uh, this one here stands out. Yahweh, hailed as the one true God. Literally, billions of people in the world today still take this God seriously. In fact, when most people use that generic word, God, they're likely referring to this God. Even if they're not interested and they have no relationship, their, their concept of God, however good it is, it's pieced together with fragments of this God's resume. So, so why is it that through time, across cultures, in every continent, amidst changes and catastrophes, renaissances and revolutions, why does this God's legacy endure? Chiefly because of Jesus. No serious student of history doubts that Jesus was an actual historical figure that lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Jesus cannot be assigned to the merely subjective world of opinions and private religious experience. No, he existed in real time and space. And if all he did was come to start a new religion, or if he was just a teacher of timeless principles, or a spiritual guru, or a moral philosopher, well then maybe you could reason that, well, there's a bunch like him. Who's to say who's right? But the record we have shows him to be much more than that. Much more than that. Startlingly more. I mean, sure, he was good and charismatic and insightful and winsome and driven, a born leader. And if he was just those things, we could handle him a lot easier. Even add to that that he was humble and just and loving and kind and relatable to the working man. Sure, we we could embrace him then. But his witnesses tell us he wasn't just trying to teach a new way. He said he was the way. He claimed that when you look at me, you're seeing this God in the flesh. Before this God created the world, and yes, he's the one who really created the world, I was there. Yahweh and I are one. I am the source of living water. I am the bread of life. I am the true light of the world. The whole world holds together in me. In fact, uh, just rehearse the history of Yahweh's involvement in the world, like how it's told through your Bible. All of your heroes, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, all the prophets. Yeah, I know I'm a homeless carpenter's son with no political power or military strength, but I'm greater than all of them. I have power over this world and all the beings of the spiritual realm. I'm that big of a deal. I mean, like, I don't... (laughs) I don't deal with people like that. The world world can't handle people like that. You say that kind of stuff, you're going to get put away. Or 
it'll get you killed. Which is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was shamefully crucified as a criminal. They made an example of him. Proving that, well, sure, he turned water into wine, but he was obviously drinking a little too much of it himself. Couldn't save himself, let alone anybody else. We're not even in the realm of unreasonable. This, this is delusional. And that's exactly how history should remember Jesus, if that's how his story ended. It's the most reasonable conclusion. Now, I hope your internet didn't cut out like right there, because it's, it's not it, okay? <laughs> that's not the legacy that has captivated billions of people today and billions more in days gone by. How do you explain that? Why would people trust this Jesus? How would that tragedy give birth to the most expansive movement in the world? Why would his followers still be recruiting people to his cause? Why are we even talking about him? Why isn't he just lost to history like every other fanatic revolutionary of his day who stirred up a ruckus and then died a similar death? Why? Well, historical sources say he rose from the dead. What, like resuscitated? Like he was never really, never really dead? No, he was dead, buried, gone. But then seen after that with a new, a whole new body, incorruptible body, never to die again. He's still alive. Says who? According to Paul, the, the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Most of them are still alive. Some of them have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also. Well, how can we trust the, the New Testament? Okay, study it. It is far and away the most reliable document of the ancient world. Like, it's not even close. We have thousands of copies and very early manuscripts. It's beyond compare. Every scholar knows this. We have every reason to be confident that those words printed on the screen just a second ago are what Paul wrote down originally. And the same is true with the rest of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus through carefully consulting eyewitnesses who insisted Jesus' tomb was empty. Well, someone could have stolen the body. Matthew acknowledges that was a conspiracy. That story got around. However, the conundrum is not just a missing corpse, but they're reporting people talking to and touching this former corpse. Well, maybe it was just wishful thinking. They really wanted it to be true, and so they fabricated it. Maybe they even believed in the cause so strongly they ended up convincing themselves. They'd seen Jesus had some hallucination-type experiences. Well, first of all, Jesus was not the first or last Messiah-type figure to try to start a revolution. There were others who did similar things. And when they were killed, as they all were, if you're a follower, you knew you either uh, go back to your life and abandon the movement, or you get a new leader for the movement. Everybody knew that's the way that it was. But in the case of the Christians, they continue to insist that Jesus is still the leader of the movement, even after his embarrassing death. It's hard to explain, unless they actually did experience him as alive after he died. And plus, there was no concept, no expectation of a resurrection like Jesus is occurring. Some Jews believed in the resurrection at the end of time, and they looked forward to that, but no one expected it to be in the middle of history. To say that it was wishful thinking, like, oh, this is what they hoped was going to happen all along, that's to import ideas into their minds that they simply wouldn't have even thought about. And they were savvy enough to know about visions and dreams and seeing people you miss after they die. They knew just as well as we do, dead people stay dead. And if they were going to make it up, 
they would have done, you think they do a better job. The Bible records the first people to witness the resurrection were women. Women's testimony wasn't even allowed in court. No, nobody would have made this up if they wanted to fabricate a credible story. But they insisted that that's how it went down. And Jesus' followers had nothing to gain from promoting this scam, if that's what it was. Remember, Jesus is not a political leader. He's not rich. There's not a kingdom to be divided up. No power to be grabbed. What would motivate them to propagate this lie? Jesus' blissful promise? Oh, there's many rooms in my Father's house. I've gone to prepare a place for you. They think there's some reward awaiting them? No, if Jesus is dead, then he's a father of lies. And his promises are garbage. We're talking about followers who were wetting themselves and afraid for their lives when they saw Jesus' life end it. What's the most reasonable way to account for their newfound courage and fearlessness in the wake of their leader being crucified? What other than that they did actually see him alive after his death, like the New Testament witnesses say? What better explanation accounts for how this tiny movement took off after some backwater, no-account carpenter's son was executed as a criminal under the reign of the most powerful empire that ever existed, the Romans. Uh, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba, he rallied the Jewish people a century after Jesus, only to have died, and his movement ran out of steam. Why didn't that happen with Jesus' movement? How did it attain explosive growth and go from being the gum under the shoe of the Romans to outlasting the Roman Empire and enduring for 2,000 years and counting across all continents and so many different cultures? What else would have propelled it other than Jesus actually rising from the dead? Conspiracy theories would have been exposed. As a lie, it's weak. The documents aren't forged. The founders weren't being paid off. In fact, They lost their lives because they insisted that Jesus was alive and therefore was who he claimed to be. Lord of all lords. God of all gods. Which was and is simply the most reasonable conclusion to draw. And now we're back to our original question. How could you say it's reasonable to believe in God History points to an empty tomb and a risen Lord. There is no more reasonable way to account for the data than to say that Jesus actually rose from the dead and therefore is who the New Testament says he is. And the risen Jesus points us to God. Not just a generic belief in something out there. No, he reveals a very specific God, the creator God, whose resume stands above the rest. We have it, it's the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the God of Israel, but not just for Israel, rather for the blessing of the whole world, a purpose that was brought to its culmination in Jesus. Jesus came to carry forward this particular God's plan, to write this God's story, a tale as old as time, but not a fairy tale, and not only for those in days gone by, but for you and for me. Now, sure, It sounds too good to be true. And maybe that's a reason for some skepticism. Jesus' climactic crucifixion and resurrection announces death doesn't have the final word. That we have an identity as God's sons and daughters. We can be restored to God, accepted in community with one another through Christ. Forgiven, freed from the sin that has enslaved us. 
Guilt and shame don't weigh us down. Our destiny is secure when our circumstances aren't. We have purpose as God's ambassadors, equipped by His Spirit to be a force for good, daring to love in Jesus' name, latched onto hope that God's justice will prevail, the world will be set to rights, weeping will cease, crying will be no more, and we will reign with Christ, who though He was slain, is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is what's really real. This is how to interpret the world. Don't be fooled by everything you see, the former dead man says. All pretenders to the throne will be exposed. The strength of the powerful will wear out. The rod of the oppressor will be broken. The humble will be exalted. The suffering will be healed. The faithful will be rewarded. And even now, there's strength in weakness and peace in the chaos. And love wins because Jesus is alive. And this is no fairy tale. Death, though it comes to us all, poses no threat. It cannot stop the God who started history and who entered history from authoring the final page of history. This is the story of the world. It's the reality that comes into view and seen in the light of the empty tomb. Something so breathtakingly beautiful and only reasonable if Jesus rose from the dead. It's like this. Either the resurrection happened and Jesus is who he says he is, or it didn't and he's not. You can't reason it any other way. And you know, uh, when I have doubts and questions, and frankly, when I just feel like I want to do whatever the heck I want, I've never yet been fully willing to ignore what remains at the root of my faith and of my view of the world and my understanding of reality. And that is... I. I think the most reasonable conclusion from everything that history tells us is that Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, it's very reasonable to believe in the God that he came to reveal. And and as a skeptic, I got to take that for what it is and respond with worship, trust, Surrender. We all got to sort that out. I hope you'll do that. I hope you seek to do that today. There are some resources on our Six Feet Apart podcast page that might be helpful. And, and let me just say, if you're trying to find God, you've got to see Jesus. If you're skeptical, I get that. Try to get a good view of Jesus. In fact, keep your negative opinions about the church being filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Keep your hesitations about organized religion. Maintain your assumptions that nothing exists outside the natural order. Leave all of that in place for now, if you insist. And just honestly investigate the claims of the Bible and of Jesus for what they actually are. Don't settle for caricatures of them that you've heard from someone else. Actually seek out this Jesus. Consider what the Bible is really trying to teach. You might be surprised. It might be dangerous. Answers might continue to seem out of reach and it might not all make sense right away. 
but go after Jesus. It's the most reasonable thing you could do.
Thanks for joining us today, guys. We'll see you next time.